You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual There are two doorstop books I've read from cover to cover at least three times. One is the King James Bible, believe it or not. But if you know you've been paying attention to my advice over the years, it's basically been one long epic 30-year riff on do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The other doorstop book I've read three times, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by William Shirer. Shirer was a foreign correspondent for the Chicago Tribune and then for CBS Radio in Germany before the Nazis came to power, and he kept a diary. He was an eyewitness to the rise of fascism. And yeah, what Shirer bore witness to in the 20s and early 30s before he had to leave Berlin at the start of the war kind of feels like what we're living through right here, right now. The parallels are unnerving, particularly what happened in Portland this weekend where Trump supporters mustered in a suburb and then drove through the center of that liberal city, harassing and pepper-spraying BLM protesters and others who were just going about their lives. That shit is straight out of the rise and fall of the Third Reich. Or as Lee Carter put it on Twitter, the history of the Nazis holding rallies in left-wing areas of Weimar Germany, instigating street fights and then telling the press that only they could save Germany from the violent communists seems like an important thing for people to be studying right now. Trump is inciting violence, violence he hopes will benefit him politically. Here's Kellyanne Conway, all drama, no mama, saying the quiet part out loud on Fox News this Sunday. There was a quote today from a restaurateur in Wisconsin saying, are you protesters trying to get Donald Trump reelected? He knows full stop. Yeah. And I guess Mayor Pete knows full stop that the more chaos and anarchy and vandalism and violence reigns, the better it is for the very clear choice on who's best on public safety and law and order. That on one level is nonsensical. To prevent the kind of violence and chaos we're seeing right now, we need to vote for the guy who is not doing anything to stop that violence and chaos and actually stoking the violence and chaos. And Trump is inciting violence, more violence, because he hopes it will benefit him politically. That's why Trump spent the weekend heaping praise on that 17-year-old fan of his who shot and killed two protesters in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and on that caravan of Trump clown shirts that drove through Portland on Saturday where one person died, a Trump supporter it appears, in a shooting that we don't yet have all the details about. But either way, whether it's BLM protesters who are dying in the streets or Trump supporters, Donald Trump loves this shit for the only reason Donald Trump has ever loved anything – because Donald Trump thinks it benefits Donald Trump. Unlike Hitler, when his brown shirts were terrorizing Weimar Berlin, Trump's already in power. So these Trump caravans, which bear a striking resemblance to those ISIS caravans that paraded through the streets of conquered Iraqi cities a few years ago, the best comparison might not be the street fights instigated by Hitler's brown shirts, but the burning of the Reichstag, the building where Germany's parliament met, which took place after the Nazis came to power, but before they had total power. That fire, which was likely set by the Nazis themselves, led to the seizure of total power, the imprisonment and execution of left-wing leaders, the Second World War, and the Holocaust. What Trump is doing right now is like setting a million little Reichstag fires all over the country, 
And he's doing it between now and what is sure to be a contested election in November. This shit, this political shit, is above the pay grade of your average and humble, always humble, sex advice columnist slash podcaster. I'm honestly not sure how best to respond to these provocations. How we, those of us living in large liberal cities, engines of the wealth that subsidizes through our tax dollars, the parts of the country where the Trumpers live, I'm not sure how best to respond in the moment when it's happening, when that Trump caravan is coming up the street. Ignoring them seems passive and complicit, but confronting them could well play into Trump's hands, and I honestly do not know what to do. But I do know this. When a Black Lives Matter protest came down our street earlier this summer, I did not feel threatened. But if a Trump caravan were to come down our street, pick up trucks with white men sitting in the beds of them waving Trump 2020 flags and holding guns, I would feel threatened. Voting. Voting. is the only way out. It's important to note, if we're going to make references to pre-Nazi Germany and the rise of fascism in the heart of Europe, that the Nazis never won an election. They came close enough to steal. We can't let Trump come close. This may be our last chance to defeat authoritarianism in the United States. Republicans, of course, are erecting barriers to voting in every state they control. Trump is sabotaging the fucking post office across the country. But we aren't going to be able to dismantle these barriers in the next nine weeks. So we're going to have to climb over them. And to that end, what I'm doing today is making a donation to votefromhome2020.org. It's an organization promoting vote by mail, working to turn out young, black, and Latino voters in swing states. And for every $25 donated, they send 20 mail-in voting applications directly to voters' homes and train volunteers follow up with phone calls and texts to make sure that people fill out those applications. And then we'll follow up with them again to make sure they turn in their ballots and turn them in early. Not everyone's in a position to write a check right now, I realize, but if you can, please consider making a donation to votefromhome2020.org. And if you can't, hell, even if you can make that donation, make sure you're also registered to vote yourself. Make sure everyone you know is registered to vote and make sure you and everyone you know who's registered to vote actually votes this November. We have got to turf this motherfucker out. This may be our last chance. All right, shifting gears coming up on the Magnum. We've got a what you got about dick pics. Everything science can tell us about dick pics. Tons of your cues on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, of course. More cues, more guests, no ads on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. All that coming up. Hi, Dan. I'm a cisgender woman in my early 30s calling with a solo quarantine sex story. I'm quarantining alone and have been through the gamut of horniness, ranging from masturbating for hours to feeling like a cloistered nun. Last year, when I was traveling through South America, I had the best sex of my life with a hot Argentinian tour guide. A few weeks ago, he FaceTimed me. We chit-chatted for a bit, and all of a sudden, he pulled out his hard dick. I'm usually terrible at video sex because I feel self-conscious, but he told me to switch the camera view so it was on my body, not on my face. We both started masturbating. He proceeded to tell me what to do. He had me on my back, then on all fours. And after I came, he told me to switch the camera view so it was on my face and made me put my wet, sticky fingers in my mouth. It was incredibly hot. And I realized that the only reason why I don't like video sex is due to a lack of imagination on my part. After we hung up the phone, he sent me a picture of his dick still dripping with cum. Turns out you can still make sexy memories. All you need is an iPhone and a hot Argentine on the other end of the line. 
Thank you very much for sharing your sex success story, your quarantine sex success story. I personally really love your story because some people are uncomfortable jacking off on camera together, masturbating together via video chat, which has been recommended by health departments all over the world to help people get through this pandemic, get through isolation and social distancing while still having active and engaged sex lives. But some people are uncomfortable with it because they don't know what to do. Well, if there are two people who don't know what to do, who are trying to do this together, that's not going to work. But if there's one person who knows what they want the other person to do and can unspool that for the other person, can tell them what to do, and it turns that person who's being told what to do on to be told what to do, it can be magic, as you discovered. Thank you for calling and sharing. I uh, want to remind everybody that we're starting a new podcast where people can share their dirty stories, their erotic stories, their real life experiences. Uh, it's called Five Minute Fuck. We're going to take the best story submitted to Five Minute Fuck and animate it as an entry, as a film, uh, in the next Hump Film Festival. For more information, go to fiveminfuck.com, F I V E M I N F U C K.com, uh, and get busy scripting and submitting your best dirty stories. Hi, Dan. So I was in a relationship for six months. We never made it official or anything. Nobody ever said that we were girlfriend, boyfriend. Until one day in the Central West End, a hobo came up to us and said we were like chopping suey. And he asked if we were married. And, uh, and my person, my guy friend at the time was like, oh, we're boyfriend, girlfriend, told this hobo. So that was the first time I heard that we're girlfriend and boyfriend. Okay. And <laughs> so we sat down and I go, oh, so we're girlfriend and boyfriend. And he just kind of shrugged about it. Okay. Life goes on. He invites me to an island in Florida vacation and it was awful. I met some of his family. He treated me like I was a little sister to him. He is 41. I'm 27 now. He made me feel like shit. And so I left Florida and I went to fucking California. I had to have my own vacation because that vacation sucked with all the old folks around. Not really old. They were like 40s and 60s, but... Still, I'm in my 20s, and I, I just, I did not have a good time with them. It's not about where you are to with. I really learned that a lot on that trip. But anyway, so when I came back, I broke up with them. I said, this isn't going to work. And now we're still hanging out, and the sex is amazing. Like, I've never came so much with anybody else in my fucking life, and it's really hard to say no to it. And we still have a good time with each other. And it's really hard to say no to hang out. And I just, I just don't know what to do. Don't think I'm in love. I don't know. I just get this crazy feeling around him. And it's fun to be around him. And the sex is amazing. I don't know, Dan. Can you help me out? As a general rule, if you don't want to hang out with the olds, don't fuck the olds. If you're going to fuck somebody in his 40s. And then you're going to socialize with that person in his 40s. You may find yourself every once in a while on an island with other people in their 40s. That said, of course, you can fuck someone in their 40s as you are still fucking someone in their 40s without winding up on an island with that guy and all of his friends. And that's by keeping it just 
fucking a friends with benefits relationship, not a boyfriend girlfriend relationship. And as a general rule, people don't go on vacations with their FWBs. They just show up at their apartments or allow the person to show up at their apartment for the sex. That can be awesome. And all that said, yours is one of those calls that for some strange reason, because of the way my brain is wired, reminds me of what Henry IV of France said when he became king. He had to convert to Catholicism to become king. And he said, Paris is well worth a mass. Is this guy, maybe this guy is your Paris, maybe, you know, putting up with him and his friends and maybe some of his patronizing attitudes based on age. And you seem to have your own patronizing attitudes that are rooted in age is worth it because the sex is amazing. And if it isn't, if you really don't like him or don't want to be drawn any further into a relationship with him that he seems to be willing to define at least when there's a hobo doing the interrogating and no to that word, then again, stop fucking him. But the sex is amazing. You say the sex is amazing and you continue to hang out even after your dramatic little scene on that island where you had to be medevaced to the airport and probably to a bar at the airport and then medevaced across the country to California and then jump in a car and drive all over the place despite the pandemic. Yeah, if the sex is amazing, keep fucking this guy. You don't have to date this guy. You don't have to be his girlfriend. But the longer you go on fucking this guy that it sounds like you kind of like and the sex works, the greater the danger that you're going to be drawn into a relationship with him, a romantic relationship with him, potentially a committed relationship, which he, if he took you off to meet family and friends, seems open to in a way that you are not. You say the sex is amazing. You can have amazing sex with other people. The odds that this guy is the only guy out of the billions of guys crawling around on the planet right now that you can have this kind of amazing sex with, very, very, very slim. There are other guys that you can have sex just as amazing as the sex you're having with this guy or even more amazing. And you were likelier to do the work and it's more work, particularly now in our circumstances to find those guys if you aren't fucking this guy. So shitter it off his face, fuck him or don't, but don't complain about fucking him as if you aren't making a choice to fuck him. And if you're going to date him, even at 27, you're going to have to learn how to tolerate hanging out with a few other of your old boyfriends, fellow olds, from time to time. Hi, Dan. I'm a late 40s woman, married to a man for 15 years. Uh, we are currently separated. And about five years ago, we kind of hit a lull in our relationship. You know, the romance wasn't really happening. He wasn't interested in sort of going on dates and doing stuff anymore. We were still having sex, but it was married people sex. And yeah, it was just hard. And he actually went to the doctor and got a full blood workup and found out he had really low testosterone, like the testosterone of an 80 year old. So he started supplementing with testosterone. There've been some really positive changes from that. He started pursuing hobby, mountain biking, working out a ton and getting really kind of obsessive about that and obsessive about eating his diet. He changed everything around with that stuff. He became really ambitious, driven at work. Yeah, it didn't really change his romantic approach. It made him more like, how do I make myself happy uh, approach to things, which is, is great. 
Um, the downside is that he became pretty quick to anger. He seemed always annoyed with me and the children, uh, just low patience, like impatient, grumpy um, when he wasn't doing the thing he wanted to do. If we don't do what he wants to do, he gets pretty grumpy. He gets angry if anybody else is angry at them because he thinks it's illogical for them to be angry. The disturbing part is that he was pretty moderate, maybe bordering a little bit on the libertarian conservative side, but he has dug in and he is super conservative now. Since Trump got elected, it has torpedoed our marriage. We're always arguing about politics. And we actually went to therapy and the therapist suggested we just don't talk about politics, which works on some level, but then you know, obviously this is a proxy argument that we have. So we start arguing and it's just not good. It's It's been really hard. But I wanted to know what the effects of testosterone are on relationships. How do they affect the individual? Does it make them more selfish? Does it make men more selfish? I hate to say it that way because I don't want to demonize men at all. Testosterone seems to have some really positive effects, but does it affect compassion? Does it affect care? Does it affect that? Or is this just unique to my husband? I smell a rat. Low testosterone levels in men are associated with like loss of body mass, loss of body hair, loss of muscular, also sometimes tiredness uh, and exhaustion and sexual dysfunction. And so going to a doctor, getting your hormone levels checked, good idea for a guy. If your testosterone is low, as in your husband's case, the testosterone of an 88-year-old, you can go on testosterone supplements that should bring you up to a baseline. And it will you know, improve sexual functioning if you have low testosterone to have a normal testosterone level again. It can uh, increase muscle mass. But sometimes going on something like testosterone, prescribed testosterone, people will change their behaviors to, in a way, take advantage of it, to sometimes make up for lost time. I suspect it may not be just testosterone that your husband is doing if you've noticed an extreme personality change. Testosterone, a lot of studies of, you know, aggression as a secondary male sex characteristic and testosterone's role in it. And there's no consensus. It kind of breaks down half and half or half the studies find that their testosterone does contribute to aggress aggression, aggressive behavior, and half find that there's no relationship. So jury is still out. What I suspect may be going on here is that perhaps your husband stared into the abyss and then pulled the testosterone pulled him back from the abyss and it liberated him to become the asshole he always secretly was and to be more open about it because he started into the abyss because there's this dividing line he now sees in his life when he is re rejecting the person he was when he had low testosterone in all instances and maybe overcompensating for the person that he was when he had low testosterone. And now he is sort of leaning into the new feelings, the new sensations, uh, the new him. And I suspect he may also, if he's become a gym rat, maybe has access to other uh, supplements or steroids that can contribute to aggressive behavior. There's also the pressure of, Right now, this could be about the timing. 
the pandemic, the Trump administration, it is pushing as we see every day when the viral videos go up of people losing their shit. It is pushing a lot of people over the edge. So there's also the possibility that her husband isn't on any other thing but testosterone, that he's only taking enough testosterone to be at a, a normal, healthy level of testosterone for a man his age. And it could just be that the shit in the air that is prompting people to vote for lunatics like Laura Loomer and to blow up at strangers in parking lots and Costco's has impacted your husband too. And it's just a coincidence that that happened to hit at the exact same time, roughly, that your husband began taking testosterone to treat a legitimate medical condition that a man might need to take testosterone for, low testosterone. So yeah, he sounds like a fucking asshole, testosterone or no testosterone. I would be, if I were you, not wondering about what testosterone did or didn't do to my husband, but wondering about exactly when I was going to inform my husband that he wasn't going to be my husband anymore. Hi, Dan. I am a mid-20-year-old female. I have recently celebrated my six-month anniversary with a very supportive, incredible partner who is a man four years my junior. Um, he is sensitive, which I love because I'm also very sensitive. He's very caring and very giving. The one thing is that our sex life, frankly, blows at this point. In the beginning, I thought I would settle for the comfort and stability of our relationship with the exception of having the passion that I have in the past. But it's gotten to the point where it's been six months now and he has not eaten me out. Um, recently, I've started flirting with disaster and speaking with somebody else online, and I'm finding myself almost unable to stop fantasizing and thinking about this other person while me and my partner have sex. I'm wondering how I can bridge the conversation with him about the fact that I need somebody who's a little bit more manly in my life and can provide for me sexually without absolutely destroying his ego. All right. So this is me calling you back because when I called you the first time, I caught you on the couch sitting next to the sensitive, caring, giving boyfriend. Yes. That sometimes happens. Yeah, of course. It was um, actually pretty funny timing because we were in the middle of breaking up. <laughs> oh, so you went ahead and did the deed then? I went ahead and did the deed. He actually ended up going down on me like the night before. Mm -hmm. And it was incredible. He was very good at it, surprisingly so, for the fact that he didn't do it for the first six months of our relationship. But when that was over, I realized that even though he'd fulfilled everything I'd asked of him, I still wasn't really into it. So I figured it was time for me to get the hell out of Dodge. <laughs> okay, well, let's drill down on this a second then, uh, just to set you up for the next relationship. There's someone you want, I guess, OOB, oob, out of bedroom, and there's someone who kind of contrasts with what you want, OOB, in the bedroom, or IOB, or oob. And you want sensitive, yeah. caring, giving out of the bedroom, and you want a bit more, I guess, manly and taking and tossing you around in the bedroom, correct? Exactly, yeah. Did you ever tell him that you want both those things and ideally in one person? Did he know that, you know, because he may have had it in him, but, you know, he's so sensitive, caring, and giving that he wouldn't assume that you would want to be treated that way in the bedroom, but, it, you know, he might be able to or even want to treat you that way in the bedroom. 
uh, or his sex partners that way, but he thinks that might disqualify him from sensitive caring and giving SCG uh, that obviously you're also prioritizing or looking for. Yeah. I, I actually did have a conversation with him about that. Um, and because he's four years younger than me, he took it very personally. And he was like, I feel like this is a personal attack on my age because I am not manly enough for you. Mm-hmm. And he just made it into something that was really toxic. And it turned into a really, really big fight when I was just trying to let him know what my needs were. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, I didn't feel too good about that. Another good reason in the for, for dumping him that he couldn't hear that kind of feedback yeah. without, you know, attributing it to something arbitrary or attributing it to some sort of ageist prejudice on your part. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's anything to do with it. I have been tossed around by people who were a decade or two younger than me. It's not necessarily about age. It's about style, taste, you know, their, their sexuality and your sexuality and kind of gelling. But, you know, going forward, you know, there is something that you want from a partner and he had what you wanted in a partner and there's something very different that you want in a sex partner. And there are some people who mm-hmm. can do both and bring both to the table and they have more than one gear, right? Mm-hmm. And they, they can take sexually and be aggressive sexually and they know when to shift into that gear And they know because you've talked about it or because you guys, you know, sometimes people don't talk about it. They just click sexually and they've demonstrated out of the bedroom that they're sensitive, caring and giving. And they've demonstrated in the bedroom that, you know, they fuck the way you like to be fucked. Right. But Mm -hmm. if you find yourself in this situation in the future, you need someone a bit more masculine in your life than the, you know, maybe than the person that you're dating is demonstrating. Well, there's two ways to control for that. Give feedback like you did unsuccessfully in this case. Mm -hmm. So he had to go. I support your decision to dump him. There's also having more than one person in your life. Yeah. And that was the other flip side of this is that I really was highly considering asking him to open up our relationship. But then of course, circumstantially, I was like, how insensitive is it of me to, and just frankly dumb of me to be like, Oh, let's open up our relationship in the midst of a global pandemic. (laughs) So (laughs) I, um, him and I are staying friends and I, I told him that like, you know, maybe in the future, like we can try and rekindle this and then perhaps bridge the conversation about being in a more open relationship. But for right now, I just need to, needed to let him go. So the sensitive care and giving sex that you had with him where I guess he was just too attentive or what, what, what was it about his sex style that, that wasn't whapping oh, you out? So this is kind of funny actually. So when we first started dating almost every single time we had sex, I don't drink alcohol. I've been sober for a couple of years. Um, but almost every single time we had sex, he would have, he would have had a couple of drinks in him. Mm-hmm. And, um, in about three months into our relationship, he decided to quit drinking. And then he started coming extremely quickly, uh, like coming, I would say like within the first 20 seconds of having sex or having, or the first 20 seconds of penetrative vaginal intercourse, penetrative sex. Yeah. And he was not willing to like go down on me beforehand. And he was not really willing to like finger me for more than like a minute before he wanted to get on with it. Um, and he admitted to me, 
he admitted to me that like the reason that he drank so much in the beginning of our relationship is because he wanted to last longer. And then once he got comfortable with me, he felt like he could finally show me his like true sexual colors. And I was like, excuse me, this is not what I signed up for. Oh my God. So as soon as you'd made yeah. an emotional investment in him, he stopped drinking and showed you th- at a time when he thought then you, you know, would be too emotionally invested in him to pull out quote unquote, ironically, and and exit the relationship. And so he was like, fait accompli, here's what sex is going to be like from here on out. 20 seconds. And it worked for a good four months too. Like I I stated it for four months of 20 second bouts. And uh, yeah, it was a bit too much for me. Okay, well, he's in the past. We don't have to talk about him anymore. Careful on the staying friends front. Like don't keep the wounds open, particularly if he's wounded. You don't want to keep that wound open. But but going forward in the future, you know, you meet the next sensitive, caring, giving guy, make it clear early in the relationship that you want all that sensitivity, caring, and giving outside of the bedroom. But inside of the bedroom, you guys have got to find that other groove that, that makes you, mm-hmm. turns you on and works for you. And give yeah. the guy the opportunity to rise to that occasion. Because some guys, they're very self-conscious about, you know, being too porny in the bedroom or being aggressive in ways that might turn a woman off, particularly a woman who made it clear when they were connecting romantically and intimately that she was seeking sort of the opposite of who she wants him to be in the bedroom. And if she doesn't tell him that he doesn't know. And if he doesn't know, Mm -hmm. you know, guys can't, you know, the cliche is that women want men to read their minds. I'm in a relationship with a dude who thinks I should be able to read his mind. It's not just a gendered thing, but don't think that they can read your minds. Give the guys an earlier opportunity to be who you need them to be in the sack. Okay. Would you recommend saying that to somebody before you've slept with them like the first time or to kind of bridge that? Cause I don't want to like jump the gun and be like, Hey, so like if we're going to fuck in the future, like this is what I need. Or no. is it something that I should. I think it's something where you, you want to fuck a few times. Cause you know, if the guy is just, that's how, if he is able to shift gears like that, if he can read you and you know, you can read each other sexually and you just, you know, without having to talk about it a lot, without having to give him a roadmap instructions, it, it, it had happens organically. And I'm not a huge fan usually of like, you know, letting it happen naturally and, and not communicating. But if it just, you guys spark sexually and it's there, then you'll know. And, and if it's, there are seeds of mm-hmm. it, if there's some signs of it, then you can kind of grow it. You can, in a sexy way, give them like more permission while you're fucking to get a little bit more aggressive by using your words and asking for what you want, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, yeah. But I would wait. I would wait a couple of times. Okay. And see if you that's, enjoy that's sex out of the gate and, you know, see if there's some of what you want there. And if you just water, if you wet ass pussy, the right things, they'll grow. And you guys will grow together in the direction yeah. that works for you and works for them. Yeah. Yay. Well, I really hope that I hope that I'm able to find that sometime in the future and that this pandemic settles down. Yeah, me too. Um, one last question for you. Was the guy good at eating pussy, this boy that you just sent packing? He was so fucking good. Like, as soon as he did it, it was outstanding. Was he hard and while he, he ate your pussy? Pardon? Was he hard? He yeah, he was. So we would, like, for fuck's we, sake. we would take nine. For yeah. fuck's sake. Why, why it was, was such a shame. Yeah. You might want to tell him that he and then not me. see him for six months or a year. So then you can be friends. But you can't be friends next week. Yeah. And like, even afterwards, like for like the two days after he like ate me out, he was just like, he would not stop talking about it. He was like, 
I loved that so much. Like, I just want more. Like, what do you want for dinner? Like, I want your pussy. And I was just like, <laughs> damn. Like a little late, <laughs> I, dude. Where is bed? Exactly. I've already got your pink slip in the nightstand drawer. I'm so sorry. Exactly. Yeah. Well, good luck. Thank you so much. You've definitely really helped. And it's been very cathartic to be able to speak this out. And how ironic that I call you and you're still with him. I call you back and it's already over. But I was glad, I'm glad we could do this debrief, this exit interview with you. Yeah, it's great. Thank you so much, Dan. Sure thing. Bye. Dan, I have a relationship quadri. I'm a 30s lesbian living in a red state in the Pacific Northwest area. My issues are not with my relationship of 18 months, but with her family. Uh, she comes from a very conservative Mormon family, which surprisingly is not the issue. The issue is her sister and brother-in-law. They're recovering addicts who found help through a faith-based treatment program. And while I very much admire the fact that they've acknowledged their problems and turned their lives around, I feel like they've swung that pendulum too far in the other direction. They're not Mormon, but Christian, and raising her son from a previous relationship, and there seemed to be new baby, very conservatively. He goes to a private Quaker school where gender non-conforming or homosexual acts is grounds for expulsion. And her brother-in-law is a staunch Trump-supporting, I'm-not-going-to-wear-a-mask conservative, who I'm civil with, but I choose to ignore most of the time. Aside from the time he posted on social media that Black Lives Matter wants to kill white families. I politely posted the Snopes article debunking this as fake news that stemmed from a white supremacist hate group. He immediately blocked me, which is fine. However, every time we go to family functions, he insists on wearing his MAGA hat. And honestly, it feels like a giant slap in the face to both myself and my girlfriend. Neither her sister, her mother, or anybody else in the family stands up for her. Dan, my girlfriend helped raise her nephew for the first several years of his life while her sister was using and then in treatment and is very close with him. However, now they are distancing my girlfriend from her nephew and won't allow her to see him alone. They haven't outright said that, but they just make excuses whenever she tries to plan a day for them to spend together. We're not trying to indoctrinate him into the gay lifestyle. We're not trying to undermine their faith or how they raise their kids. We want to take him to the park or the Discovery Center or other fun kid things. This has actually begun to seep into other family relationships as well. My girlfriend constantly finds out information third hand and much later than everybody else because nobody remembers to include her. Recently, a great uncle passed away and she found out like a week later. Dan, I feel like her family is icing her out. They say they accept her. She's been out for over 15 years. She was previously married to a woman. But it all feels so isolating and hateful. Am I making a mountain out of a molehill? Is this because of the pandemic and election year that we're creating higher than usual tensions? Is this a classic case of if it hurts when I go like this, don't go like that? Is our only leverage our presence or do we persist and kill them with kindness? Do we keep the peace and keep our mouths shut or do we raise hell? It sounds like your partner's family that previously accepted her sexuality, welcomed her, relied on her particularly her sister for childcare when she was abusing drugs and alcohol and needed your partner's help. Sounds like they are walking back this acceptance that they previously demonstrated the acceptance of your partner's sexuality, her lesbianism and her relationships. Sounds like thanks to the poison that is 
conservative Christianity, evangelical Christianity, uh, very conservative Mormonism. Sounds like they are no longer as loving or accepting as they used to be. Someone has been pouring poison in their ears and they're indeed holding her and by extension you at arm's length and going out of their way to demonstrate to her and to you through symbolic acts that they no longer love and accept or trust you. And so what do you do? Well, you know, I'm the king of the 40, 50 year old pop culture references sometimes, but you gotta, you know, I think of that line from Chinatown, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown, which just means there's really nothing you can do. You can keep showing up at these events to be disrespected and hurt by these disrespectful, hurtful assholes, or you can do yourselves the favor of not showing up when you know what you're showing up for is to get punched in the fucking face by a bunch of goddamn bigots. But the choice isn't, as you say, between raising hell and, or, you know, or being at peace with the way you're treated. I think you should raise some hell and then not see these motherfuckers and be at peace with that choice. Let them all know that you see what they are doing and that it upsets and hurts you and you are not going to show up to have to see it in person, to have to see the MAGA hat, to have to listen to the disrespectful comments, to be treated like you are predators who are trying to seduce your sister's nephew into the lesbian lifestyle or gay lifestyle or whatever the fuck. And it's sad. It's sad that your sister is not going to be able to be in contact in the same way with her nephew that she once was. And she won't play as large a role in his life as she had. And it's sad for him. And it's also very sad and I'm sure very painful for your sister, but there's not a lot that you can do about it. If you're, sister-in-law or your sister's sister doesn't want to let her nephew because of the pernicious influence of her asshole husband or their asshole church be alone with you guys. You can't take her to court. You can't force her to, you can call her on her bullshit and you can say, I see what you're doing. You used to let me used to need me to take care of your son and you trusted me then. And you don't trust me alone with your son now for what reason? Well, I can only bigotry period the end because of this religious shit that you've gotten mixed up in your new addiction. And just as your previous addictions negatively impacted your relationships when you were abusing substances, now that you're abusing imaginary sky friends, again, your addiction is negatively impacting your relationships. Can you see the pattern there? This is what I mean when I encourage you guys to raise some help, blow the fuck up at these people, make them feel bad, risk making them feel bad. They're making you guys feel bad. Blow the fuck up at them. And, and this is all contingent upon what your partner wants to do. This is her family we're talking about. But I would encourage her through you to blow the fuck up at her mother too. And then walk the fuck away from these assholes. And trust that this kid, the, the nephew, will remember you. Maybe show up every once in a great while wearing a bestos-dipped <laughs> hazmat suit so you can get through it so this nephew knows that you exist and he knows that you're out there so when the day comes, and it almost inevitably will, that he wants to get the fuck away from these assholes too, he'll know that he has loving, supportive, liberal relatives out there that he might be able to reach out to on social media and reconnect with who might be willing to swoop in when he's 18 and get him the fuck away from these assholes, assuming he hasn't curdled into an asshole himself by then, which is, of course always the risk, but you can only do what you can do. And in a circumstance like this, as painful 
as it is to recognize there isn't a lot that you can do. You can only protect yourselves. The way to do that is to stop showing up. As you said, stop making yourself present. Deny them your presence. Don't show up to get punched in the fucking face or to get kicked in the gut emotionally again and again and again by these motherfuckers. Build your own family. Build your chosen family. Fuck her biological family. Make your logical family. And maybe one day, fingers crossed, your sister's nephew will be a part of your logical family again. Hi, Dan. I'm an early 40s trans woman living in Toronto, Canada, and have been on HRT for a little over a year. I'm often told I passed for my early 30s. I'm recently separated with two young boys, my wife and I successfully co-parent. I've had a few surgeries, including breast augmentation, recent boy surgery, FFS, and a hair transplant. I'm about six foot two, pretty lean but muscular, and maybe pass half the time at best. I'm interested in cis and trans women, and I'm horny and love to please my partners. My question relates to my plumbing. I still have a functioning penis that is happy to do the job, but here's the thing. I don't hate it per se, but I'm waiting for approval for bottom surgery, and what turns my crank is full-on lesbian sex, which does not include a penis, even my own. My friends tell me to live this middle life to its fullest and bang away while I'm waiting for bottom surgery. And I don't mind, but it's just not my thing. I like eating pussy for an extended period of time, but don't come from it myself. When it comes to the PIV part, it feels wrong for some reason, but right in some other ways. I do want to come and really just don't know how to get over this mental block. I'm looking for a monogamous or monogamish relationship with a woman who is GGG, and I don't know how to reconcile this in-between time. I also don't know what woman is going to be okay with a penis, tits, and then eventually a neo-vagina. I feel like my pool of potential mates is like one in a million. Please help, Dan. The best you can do, all you can do, all any of us can do, is put ourselves out there as we are, be honest about who we are and where we're at, and see who comes our way. See who we attract, see who we appeal to. And what you're thinking is because you still have a penis and you're going to get bottom surgery and have a vagina is that whoever you're with now can't possibly be someone you'll be with forever. Well, there are lots of people out there who are lots of trans people out there who are still with the people that they partnered with before their transition, before in many cases they even realized they were trans. I heard from Jenny Boylan, trans writer, columnist in the New York Times, that roughly half of all marriages, when one person comes out as trans, survives. So that would seem to indicate that if you got into a relationship now with someone, there may be a chance that that relationship would endure and survive your transition if it works in all other ways. Seems even likelier that yours might endure and survive your bottom surgery if the person that you're seeing knows that you intend to get bottom surgery, knows that going in, that the penis you have and can enjoy having and they can enjoy if they're capable of enjoying your penis is just for now, not forever, and that you are going to have bottom surgery, bottom gender confirmation surgery. But you know, if you zoom out for a second and, th- and think about relationships and the way relationships work, you know, 
every relationship you're going to be in is going to fail for some reason or another until one doesn't. You don't know which one that is until you die while you're still with somebody if you're lucky enough to die partnered, right? Which is the brass ring, allegedly, supposedly. And I reject that language usually about, you know, a relationship that ended failed, but just, you know, using it there. So rather than saying I can't possibly mate with somebody, anybody, I can't probably get with anybody or date anybody now because things could change. Well, even after you get the bottom surgery, that will still be true. There's no guarantee after you get the bottom surgery that if you meet somebody who's into you, into your vagina, you're into them, into their vagina, that that relationship is going to be the one you're in until, you know, for the next several, hopefully decades until the end of your life or their life, or, you know, if you're lucky enough to go out together, a car crash when you're 95, both your lives. So be a bit more zen about it. Yeah, you might wind up with somebody for now who really enjoys who you are now, and that relationship might not be forever. And that's okay. And maybe your bottom surgery, once you get it, will be a contributing factor in the end of that relationship. But if the person knows going in that you're going to get bottom surgery, that seems unlikely. That relationship could end for reasons that have nothing to do with your genitals or your being trans. And if that relationship that you're in now ends, then you can date women going forward after your bottom surgery where you, they know what they're going to get and this is who you're going to be. This is what your genitals are going to be like forever. And there's not going to be this moment of transition, this moment of bottom surgery. And maybe that relationship will last forever or maybe it won't. You just can't know. So you have to let go of this stress that because you're still in transition that no one would want to be with you through your transition. There's lots of evidence out there. I'm sure you're reading and talking to other people who are trans. I'm sure you're reading about other people's experiences, transitioning with bottom surgery. There are lots of examples out there of people who had a partner before they got top or bottom surgery and their partner is still with them post top and bottom surgery. But there are no guarantees. And that sounds like it's what you're stressing about because there are no guarantees you fear getting into a relationship now. You know what? There are no guarantees ever whether you're cis or trans, at what point in your transition you're at when you get into a relationship, there are no guarantees. You have to not quite let go of that stress of there being no guarantees, but rather just acknowledge it, embrace it, get over it, and then get out there as yourself, as you are now, making it clear to the people you date now that there are more changes coming, changes they may welcome, Changes they may not. Hi, Dan. I'm a 32-year-old female living in the Pacific Northwest here. I'm hoping you can assist me with some turmoil I've been faced with. I'm very happily partnered with a loving man, and we live together. We have recently decided to be open to other people and experiences. That being said, only from safe distances due to covid I recently became in touch with another man who lives in another state via online, and we're hitting it off really well. He and I have had a very sexy LDR, and I'm really getting to enjoy getting to know him beyond that. He is smart, funny, talented, and very respectful to me. My dilemma lies here. This person is kind of famous, and I have been a huge fan of his for many years. Side note, I'm 100% positive that it is him, and I'm definitely not being catfished. 
But that's not the issue. The issue is that I ended up Googling him, and my heart sank into my stomach. There are articles about him being accused of being abusive to women in his past. After further research, he has been accused by a male friend, ex-friend, I suppose, and no women have or did come forward to validate the claims or have filed any sort of lawsuits against him. Obviously, as a woman who will and do stand up for women and take these accusations very seriously, whether there is proof or not, as we all know that listening to the victim is to be believed. So, needless to say, I am concerned about who this person might be and, of course, for my own safety. He has been very open with me about that period of his life regarding other issues and how he has been sober and in therapy for a number of years. I have yet to bring up my findings to him to confront him about it, and I need your advice as to how to proceed with this. I absolutely do not condone or accept excuses for that type of behavior. And I also would like to believe that people make mistakes and bad choices and can be rehabilitated in some ways, especially if it happened years ago. Dan, how do I approach this necessary conversation with him without judgment, but also stand up for my beliefs and for women in general? I really do see that he could be a decent guy and maybe had an awful past, and I'd like to believe that, as we have a seemingly great thing going. Additionally, how do I approach this issue with my current partner? If I were him, I would freak the fuck out and be really upset, concerned, and confused as to why I would even still be interested. Even after confronting my LDR, if I feel confident in his responses and do not see him as a threat, how should I communicate that to my partner? The LDR would love to come see me when COVID cools down, so the safety issue could become a real concern for him if we end up meeting. I really do like this guy. I really want to have sex with him, but I really need your help. I assume you've done a deeper dive on this guy and the accusations and his past than I'll ever be able to do because I don't know who you're talking about and I do not have his name. And you say that no women have actually come forward to accuse him. There have been no lawsuits and that the accusations against him were all leveled by a male friend, basically an ex-male friend. So while I too think we need to take accusations seriously, which is what people meant by believe women, it wasn't believe anything anybody says because anybody is capable of lying and take accusations seriously. And I do think if not proof beyond the shadow of a doubt matters, but evidence matters. And it sounds as if there is no, not just proof here, conclusive proof that this man abused anybody, but also, except for the word of a male friend, no evidence that he abused anyone, no accusations from the people that he is alleged to have actually abused. And I think all of that, which itself is evidence, exculpatory evidence, has to be taken into account while you decide what to do. Now, in your conversations with him, it sounds as if he's taken some responsibility for past bad behaviors and maybe situations or circumstances where 
he made people uncomfortable or consent was muddy in such a way that he now knows from the perspective that a lot of us have gained in the last few years that some of his behaviors were unacceptable and not ways in which he would behave now, knowing what he knows now. Of course, someone who is still an abuser, who's been outed as an abuser, might say that to set somebody at ease so that they can then seize the opportunity to abuse someone else. And fame and celebrity and your relationship with this guy prior to ever actually having met him being a fan, it creates a kind of power imbalance or there may be this desire on your part to believe his excuses because you would like to bask in the glow of not just his dick, but his celebrity and fame and that kind of power. So I do think you need to be careful and you need to be introspective and you need to interrogate not just his actions, but perhaps your, not motives, but desire or the risk for you to possibly want to wash away or, or wave away what evidence might actually exist and evidence you didn't share with me in your question and your call. So I do think it would be a good idea if you're in an honest, ethical, open relationship to parse this out with your boyfriend who hopefully can be objective about this. It's not the kind of tense open relationship where you're allowed to see other people, but they don't want to hear about it. And they're kind of annoyed where you're allowed to share with him about your engagement with this person, your desire to actually meet this person's once the pandemic calms down. And if because of twatful thinking or a little love is blindism, you're overlooking more damning evidence than you shared with me or that you perhaps because you haven't allowed yourself to see it or really process it or take it in, perhaps your boyfriend will spot it and will encourage you not to see this guy. Sometimes we need to call in the cavalry. We need to call in the friends or call in the, you know, romantic partner to help us see red flags that maybe we ourselves, because we're infatuated, aren't seeing. You need to call in the cavalry here. You need to talk with somebody that you can share this person's name with. You need to talk with somebody that you can sit in front of a computer and look at what's out there about what this person did or did not do and then make an assessment and then make your best judgment or to employ your best judgment about whether you're going to see this person or not. And if it can't be your boyfriend, if he can't be impartial, then turn to a friend, turn to a trusted friend that you can share all of this with in confidence who isn't interested in getting in this guy's pants, who can play the devil's advocate and point out to you any red flags that you may have missed. All right, we're going to take a quick break from your calls because every once in a while we like to invite researchers or scientists onto the show to share with us the results of a new scientific study that they published for a little segment we call What You Got. Joining me by phone from Bloomington, Indiana, for this What You Got, Alexandra Marcotte, postdoctoral fellow at the Kinsey Institute. Hey, Alexandra, how are you? Hi, good, thanks. Uh, thank you so much for, for, for coming on. So what do you got? Sure. So we just released a study out of the Kinsey Institute looking at dick pics. And specifically, we were interested in understanding why people were sending unsolicited dick pics and the reactions to receiving so nice work if you can get it, doing a study looking at dick pics. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I want to volunteer on the next one. 
Um, I, I joke. Great. Actually, I, I'm one of those, I think, rare for gay men. Like the gay men I know mostly don't mind getting dick pics. But I don't like to mm-hmm. see a dick pic because I always worry about who the dick's attached to. And it matters to me <laughs> that it's not Sean Hannity's dick I'm looking at, but somebody I might like. Uh, so, so what did you find? What, what is the general, you know, people talk about unsolicited dick pics all the time, not being okay. Don't send unsolicited dick pics, but you looked mm-hmm. at people who got them and how they felt about them. And what did you find? So we, the biggest difference that we found was in gender. So we looked at straight bisexual, um, and gay women and across the board, they generally had negative reactions to receiving. So those would have included being grossed out, being disrespected and feeling violated. But for gay and bisexual men, the reactions were almost always positive. So either <laughs> curious, entertained, or aroused. So there's a huge gender difference there. Were any uh, women who got unsolicited dick pics entertained or aroused? Or were they all disgusted? <laughs> there, were, there were some. Um, so the women who received um, bisexual women, about 12% felt aroused. And of heterosexual women, it was about 7.5%. But by and large, they had negative reactions. So when you talk about unsolicited dick pics for this study, are we talking about like out of the blue from some guy you don't know from Adam, somebody you've never met, and suddenly they somehow got your number and send you a dick pic? Are we talking about an unsolicited dick pic from someone you've been seeing casually, someone that you've been talking with online that you might meet up with for a date post-COVID? Where are the unsolicited dick pics in your study coming from? Complete strangers or somebody that you might know or already be involved with to some extent? So it would be both in this case. So we are looking at people who just received dick pics without asking for them. So it could have been on a dating platform. It could have been on Grindr or Bumble or Tinder, um, or it could have been somebody that you've been seeing and you just didn't ask for one. So it would be both. So what accounts do you think, and do you guys go into this in your study, for the difference in the gendered reaction to unsolicited dick pics? It's a great question. Um, and it's something that we... Uh, we spent a long time discussing and trying to figure out, and I think there's a lot there. So I think in terms of the responses, there's there's a lot of difference. So for women responding negatively, it could be because they are supposed to, under sort of cultural norms, to respond negatively to huh. unsolicited sexual advances. Uh-huh. It could be um, that they are women especially post Me Too, are, feel more comfortable saying that they're responding negatively or recognizing that this is a response that they're having. Um, and with gay and bisexual men, it could be that it's sort of an expected feature of being on Grinder, for example, that you're going to get these. But I also think there's something very real there about sexual pleasure and sexual experiences and how you want to be um, engaging sexually online. I, you know, my inclination would be to, you know, women move through the world encountering a lot of unwelcome sexual attention. It can feel like, you know, not you know, actual dick pics, but sort of the, you know, emotional equivalent of a dick pic, getting harassed on the bus, somebody telling you to smile on the street, all this unwelcome attention from men. And men move through the world and you don't, straight men particularly, don't get that kind of unwelcome sexual attention from women. I don't think a lot of men understand that your dick pic could be the straw that broke the camel's back. It could come at a time when a woman is just fed up with men not respecting her boundaries, her desires, not seeking their consent to engage in this way, whereas guys don't get a lot of that. And so a dick pic can, you know, particularly if you're a gay or bi guy, can be sort of a delightful surprise and a change of pace, whereas a dick pic, I think, for a lot of women is like more of the same. 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think that you're seeing in sending an unsolicited dick pic to women, there's sort of a power move that's happening. You don't get to choose whether or not you receive that image. And so it's always going to have an issue of sexual consent. And for women to respond negatively, I do. I feel like it's it's not that different from street harassment. It's not that different from being flashed on the street. So we've seen earlier versions of this. And it exists in sort of a universe where, you know, women living day to day with this implied threat of male violence, male sexual violence at any (laughs) time, you know, bursting into their lives uh, in an unwelcome way. And I think guys need to be, particularly men who are attracted to women, need to be thoughtful about that. And often aren't. And I think that dick pic, what that dick pic might say, even if she liked you, even if there was some established connection, what that dick pic might say is, I have no common sense. I, I can't take your feelings to consideration. I lack empathy. And all of those things would make a woman feel uncomfortable with you. Not the fact that you have a dick. She knows you probably have a dick. And it's not a surprise. But all those other things that you're communicating about yourself when you send an unsolicited dick pic is going to make you a less attractive partner potentially. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that people aren't responding positively means that that men must at some point see that this is not working. This is not a successful strategy. And so just to be cognizant of what you're doing. And I also think that's why research like this is important to be able to say, hey, look, women don't, by and large, want to receive unsolicited dick pics. And that's a conversation that we should be having. Are you going to do a follow-up study where you look at guys who sent those unsolicited dick pics and examine their motivations and expectations? I would love to. Um, there is an existing study that came out um, last year by Flora Oswald and colleagues where they looked at motivations for sending. Um, and they were interested specifically as well in unsolicited dick pics. And I think another really cool study would be to focus on women who send nude images and to see how very different the discourse is around sending those images. I'm sure the guys are delighted for the most part. I mean, I, right. I, I wouldn't be delighted. I would experience that maybe a little bit differently. But most men who are into women would probably be – it would be a delightful change of pace. It wouldn't be more of the goddamn same for a guy to get that yeah. kind of unsolicited yeah. pick. And I think that's what a lot of guys – just don't understand. I, I do want to ask you again, though, about one thing you mentioned that, and I think this is, I think that's really insightful that some women may be reacting negatively because it's what they've been told is expected of them culturally. Mm-hmm. And I do think that, you know, we sometimes don't take into account, you know, the sex negativity and kink negativity and, you know, body shame that just we, we all marinate in. And that can really inform mm-hmm. our reactions at times to, you know, other people being sexual or people being attracted to us or somebody like suggesting they want to try something. And sometimes we have this sort of knee jerk negative reaction and women have it pounded into them that, you know, only bad girls have sex and this fear of slut shaming and can be, and may in some cases, not all cases be reacting negatively to a dick pic because they're following a cultural script. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a huge part of it. And I also think there's this fear too of, what happens if you send a picture of yourself for men and who who then does that get sent to? And so I think thinking not just about how somebody reacts, but how your image could be exposed. And I think that might um, limit a lot of women from engaging in reciprocal behavior. Um, and so you have this sort of, you have women not being able to fully express themselves sexually and also being expected to not respond positively. And so it creates the situation for women where while these platforms of like online dating are in a large way beneficial for women, there's still all of these moments when their sort of womanhood or gender is called um, into question. 
One more question before I let you go. Uh, and I think this study yeah. is fascinating and I'm, I'm really glad you were able to jump on the phone with me. The question I get from women who received unsolicited dick pics and are annoyed or angry or threatened about it, the question I'm always asked by these women is, do, why do men think this would ever work? Why would a guy send this? And it, in, in, in hearing about your data, it sounds like for a very small percentage, you know, in the case of a very small percentage of women, it does work. And are the guys all hoping they're going to, you know, hit that small percentage or they just don't care? But it does work sometimes. It does work sometimes. It definitely works sometimes. So there is that. And I think maybe the potential that it could work this time is a driving force. And I also think, um, although we don't have a ton of data about this, there is the possibility that people are sending because the act of sending itself is arousing. Mm. Like, a fla- like a flasher, but digitally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So being able to express yourself sexually through the act itself and the, the response to receiving the image really doesn't matter. And then I also think it's about power. Yeah, it, it's, everything is about power, right? <laughs> <laughs> There's that famous Oscar Wilde quote that I, that I won't butcher by... by uh, paraphrasing it but it's out there uh, everything is about sex except sex sex is about power i think that's what the Oscar exactly. Wilde quote. i don't want to leave this with guys thinking that you know they should take their shot because they might get that you know small they might hit that small percentage of women who would welcome that dick pic uh, that's dickful thinking you are almost invariably going to be rejected or, or, or hurt somebody or make somebody feel threatened if you send that dick pic. If she is, if the person you're interacting with is the kind of person who might like to get a dick pic, you can ask if they'd like to get your dick pic. And if she's the kind of woman mm-hmm. who would, she'll say so. Yes, absolutely. I think that's the whole point. Communication, consent is the thing that matters. That's the most important. Sexting can be incredibly positive and beneficial to relationships and to our sexual and intimate lives. And that's really important. But make sure that you have permission first. Where can people who want to read your study find it? What's the title of it and and what publication is it in? So the title is Women's and Men's Reactions to Receiving Unsolicited Genital Images from Men. That's a long title. Um, And it is in the Journal of Sex Research. So if you just search for the Journal of Sex Research, it'll be one of the most recent publications. Alexandra Marcotte, postdoctoral fellow at Kinsey Institute. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone today. Thanks so much. Hi, Dan. I'm calling because... My partner and I are having some COVID-related conflict and stresses, and I'm just really unsure how to move forward. So in a nutshell, the issue is that I am taking more precautions than my partner. Here's our situation. We've been together for three years. We don't live together, but we live two blocks apart, and she has two roommates, and that's my quarantine pod, my partner and and her two roommates. But like... I wipe down my groceries when I bring them home. She doesn't. I've never seen her sterilize her phone, never seen them sterilize their doorknobs in their apartment. These are all things that I do on a regular basis. All this has been bothering me, but I've kind of kept my mouth shut because, you know, as long as my partner wears a mask and washes her hands when she comes in from the outdoors and stuff, like, I don't see it as my place to micromanage her actions. But The other day, I found out that one of her roommates went on a date indoors with somebody, um, went into a bar somewhere. And like to me, that just crosses the line because whoever her roommates share air with are also people I'm sharing air with. And I would never go at this stage into a bar or restaurant with somebody, with a stranger. So I'm just, what do I do short of 
quarantining myself from all of them. I don't see a way to protect my health if her roommates are going to be going on indoor dates with people and things like wiping down phones, doorknobs, groceries, like, Dan, I just don't know how to avoid having a big blow confrontation with my partner or I don't want to break up with her. We've been together for three years and we really love each other, but this is a big issue for me. At the start, we were wiping down packages, containers, things we got at the grocery store because that's what we had been advised to do. At the same time, we were advised not to wear masks. That has been turned on its head. Now we know that it is better to wear masks. We should all be wearing masks and that there is not really any pressing need to wipe down food packaging, containers. Uh, There has been, according to the Mayo Clinic, no cases, no confirmed cases of COVID transmission from, for instance, a, a food package brought home from the grocery store. And while studies have found that the virus can survive on surfaces, it's not an efficient mode of transmission for the virus. Uh, for you to, you know, touch something that someone with the virus has touched and maybe left viral particles on. The way people get this is by inhaling the virus by through droplets in the air. And, you know, that idea that you could touch something that somebody had touched and the virus was on that package and then you might touch your eye and then it has to go in your eye and then down into your sinuses and ultimately you have to aspirate, you have to inhale it. And that sort of For all of that to happen is highly unlikely, particularly if the viral particles themselves have degraded or been compromised, even if they're still present on packaging. So the advice has been reversed because science, not because science was wrong and we shouldn't listen to science, but because science told us what it knew then and then revised and updated, you know, what we were all supposed to do based on new data, incoming data. That's why science isn't fake, right? So wear your masks and maybe be a little less paranoid about wiping down packages. That's not your question. The girlfriend. The girlfriend has a roommate. The roommate is taking risks that you feel are unreasonable. I agree with you. I would not go into a bar with a stranger now on a date and have a drink. I live in Seattle where we're in phase something or other of reopening where there are some bars and restaurants that are open and I see people in them and I think they're fucking crazy. I want bars and restaurants to survive the pandemic. We have been ordering because we're fortunate enough to still be employed food to go from bars and restaurants that we love and want to see survive, but I would not patronize them by going and sitting in them or meeting up with a stranger in particular. That risk to me seems unreasonable and unwise, not just for the person taking it, but for everyone that that person might come into contact with after they leave the bar. And in this case, that includes your fucking girlfriend. So what do you do? Well, you say you've been with your girlfriend for three years. It's not your girlfriend who's taking unreasonable risks. It's your girlfriend's roommates. You can't control the choices that your girlfriend's roommates are going to make. The only way for you to be as safe as you would like to be, as safe as I'm trying to be in these circumstances, is for you to invite your girlfriend to move the fuck in with you, for you to be your girlfriend's roommate, for your girlfriend not to have contact with her roommates anymore. I assume that must have occurred to you that your girlfriend could move in. You guys could be each other's quarantines until this was all over. So there might be a reason why your girlfriend hasn't or can't, or you haven't invited her to move in. You might want to revisit that to eliminate the risks here that you think are unreasonable. I agree with you. 
you're going to have to not be in contact with your girlfriend so long as she's living with people who are going on dates in bars with strangers and exhaling all over them. So you either got to bring her in to your apartment, get her on your lease, symbolically or literally, or end it if the risk is unacceptable to you. Hey, Dan. 28-year-old gay guy here living on the East Coast. My boyfriend recently moved into my apartment. We've been together for a couple of years. Uh, and we're actually pretty versatile. Um, but lately, I've been topping a lot more. And the sex is really good, and I get turned on right away. The only problem is that it takes me a long time to come, and it does not take him long to come at all. So I'm finding that uh, in order not to wear him out, um, and just sort of drag out the process of my orgasm. Toward the end, I'll start fantasizing about some porn I've been watching or scenarios that uh, really turn me on just to, you know, really throw me over the edge. And it's fine, you know, like, it, the sex is, like I said, really good. It's just that I don't uh, like making him wait for my climax when I'm just sort of pounding his ass on end. So I'm trying to get out of that habit. I have a feeling that I'm probably a little bit too accustomed to watching porn to get myself off and, you know, ingratiating myself in those uh, kinds of scenarios mentally um, in order to get to that finish line. Um, But I don't know. I love your thoughts on the matter and how I can just sort of stay present in the moment throughout the entire experience and not just during all the the foreplay and uh, the in-between and everything. I'd love to, you know, I love for every moment of it, including uh, the climax to just be me in the room with him. You're going to these fantasies and replaying some porn in your head when you become self-conscious about how long it's taking, when your boyfriend probably has already come and he's letting you continue to fuck him until you get off. And that's nice of him, but it puts you in this awkward position where you know he's kind of done with sex and is enduring what's happening now for you, for your pleasure. And you don't want to overtax him. You don't want to overstay or overdick. You're welcome in his butt. So you start kind of playing with your tits in your head. You start thinking about porn scenarios to be kind to him, to, to hurry yourself along, to, to, to get over and get off. And it pulls you out of the room. It pulls you away from him. The fix for this is to involve him in the conversation that you're having in your head. If thinking these thoughts helps get you off and get you closer, articulating them, saying them aloud, dirty talk, will definitely get you there. And if you can dirty talk, and you know, not like, hey, there's this hot porn I saw to the guy you're fucking, but if you can dirty talk about the sex you've enjoyed with him, how much you're enjoying the sex you're having with him now, about a fantasy scenario that you two have talked about realizing together at some point in the future, if you can engage, you know, that part of your brain, that the, the sexual fantasy part of your brain that helps push you to the point of orgasmic inevitability, and I love that phrase, and you want to stay connected to him and, and feel like you're in the room with him, well, the way to do that is to share that with him, to talk with him about that, for the both of you to say those things and, and fantasize about those things together. And then he is helping to trigger your orgasm by tickling that part of your brain. You know, there's a lot of people out there who who take a long time to come and sometimes it's a, you know, they need to, to fantasize, they need, to, they need some dirty talk, sometimes they need to play with their tits, sometimes they need a finger in their ass, sometimes they need all of that. There are people out there who, if you fire on all cylinders, if you're not just relying on penetration and the friction provided by penetration on the deck, 
but you know, the bottom of your fucking is playing with your tits and you two are talking and there's a vibrating buck plugged in your ass, you'll get there faster. You need to find out maybe what your other orgasmic triggers are physically that he can perform for you when you're wanting to come and he is ready for you to come. And if you can figure out what those other triggers are, the physical things that he could be doing in addition to taking your dick, maybe you'll be less reliant on these fantasies in your head and maybe you won't have to dirty talk with him about fantasies. You may be then less reliant on the porn loop playing in your head or maybe those physical things can be added in addition to the dirty talk and the fantasizing about the porn loop in your head that you can involve him with. All right, before we get to response calls, let's read some tweets. Patrick Miller tweets, if you revisit the Falwell's puke emoji in your rant, Dan, can you please highlight when Becky Falwell blew her son's bandmate? Even though he was a 22-year-old man, her advance was an uninvited, non-consensual abuse of power. It needs to be said. Well, you said it, Patrick. And anyone who wants to read all about that creepy, coercive blowjob, you can find that story at Politico. The Falwells deny this allegation. But the then 22-year-old Liberty University student, the then 40-something Mrs. Falwell, is alleged to have blown, confided in friends at the time about the incident and how uncomfortable it made him to get blown first by his friend's mom in the middle of the night in his friend's house and secondly by the wife of the president of Liberty University, which expels students for engaging in premarital sex and there is no exception in the student code of conduct for banging the president's wife. In other Falwell news, both halves of that despicable couple continue to deny the suggestion that Jerry knew anything about Becky's pool boy. So it's like I said, Jerry didn't throw Becky under a bus when he tried to blame all their problems on the emotional fallout of Becky's affair with the pool boy. She crawled the fuck under that bus like she crawled the fuck under that pool boy of her own free will because Becky loves that sweet, sweet, fundy money just as much as Jerry does. And just as much as Jerry likes watching Becky guzzle those sweet, sweet pool boy loads. Kron's of Nam tweets, Hey, at Fake Dan Savage, after hearing episode 722 of the Savage Lovecast, I humbly ask that you please make some We're All Pool Boys Now merch. I will take that into consideration. And finally, Stone Cold Jane Austen, whose tweets I've shared before, had this to say about my Falwell rant. At Fake Dan Savage posited a theory that Jerry Falwell is sick and tired of being tied to Liberty University and deliberately hit the self-destruct button to get out of it. That interpretation would seem to be backed up by the comments Jerry Falwell Jr. himself made after he announced his resignation. In addition to insisting he hadn't broken any rules that apply to staff, students can't have premarital sex or commit adultery, but apparently the president of the university can, which makes Falwell just another example of a screw as I say, not as I screw Christian conservative. Anyway, Falwell, who recently had to apologize for a racist tweet, and it was just one of his racist tweets out of many of his racist tweets that he had to apologize for, Falwell had the nerve to loot one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s most famous speeches Free at last, free at last, Falwell said before adding, that's the way I feel getting out of Liberty University. All right. Falwell's out of Liberty University. If only we could all get him out of our timelines now. We want to thank everybody who tweets about the show and uses the hashtag Savage Lovecast so we can find your tweets and share the ones I like best on the show. We really appreciate it. It helps promote the show when you let your followers know about it and know that you're listening and comment also, if you want to zip on over to iTunes and leave a review for the Savage Lovecast, we would appreciate that as well. And now your response calls. I'm responding to the caller who has a fragrance sensitivity but didn't want to tell her boyfriend about it because she was worried about offending him. 
And I feel like this is part of the category of calls you get from women who, as you point out, have been conditioned and socialized to defer to men and to avoid offending men at all costs. And I, before I started listening to your show, I didn't realize how much I do this in my own life. And uh, and listening to your show has really helped me recognize it and work to stop doing it. Uh, So I just wanted to thank you for always patiently, but forcefully encouraging us women to stick up for ourselves. Hi, Dan. This message is for Walking Dildo. If I could recreate sexual experiences in my life, it would be with the two lesbian bi-identified-ish women. I've done so in the past separately, (laughs) but they were incredibly giving and open and so completely incredible that I, for some reason, view them as these unicorns. And I'm a little heartbroken that she didn't say she's in my area because at least I'd have the hope of that. But I can't think of any halfway decent guy who wouldn't be down. I know I certainly would. Hey, Dan, calling about episode 722 in response to the woman whose partner wanted to video a cuck holding session with her. One way to safely video could be to buy a cheap old digital or even VHS camcorder, then only watch it together, and she remains in control of the video at all times. It might be a fun, kinky throwback to simpler days. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number. If you want to leave a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz, 206-302-2064. You can also use the voice memo app on your phone to record your question and then email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. If you missed the 15th Annual Hump Film Festival online a few months ago, we have several new screenings scheduled just for you by popular demand starting this Friday, September 4th. Go to humpfilmfest.com to watch the trailer and get your tickets for a variety of different showings. And they're still accepting submissions for 5-Minute Fuck. They're looking for erotic, fictional tales, sexy true stories, for real sex, whatever you think makes a great, dirty audio short. They'll compile their favorites into one great podcast series, and one lucky story will be animated and be submitted and be a part of the 2021 Pump Film Festival program. Go to 5-Min, that's F-I-V-E-M-I-N, fuck.com to learn more. And I want to thank Chris, Scooter, Corey, Anna, and Claire, who all became Magnum subscribers this week. We love all of our listeners equally, but we love our Magnum subscribers just a little more. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage and go to VoteFromHome2020.org to make a The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech heavy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week on installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.